So uh, if you could all open your Bibles to John chapter 12, um, I know a lot of pastors are going to the Psalms for comfort and some other places. I've always found it amazing that God meets us where we are. And we're in John chapter 12, and uh, God has really uh, spoken to me through John 12, and I think right where we are at this time with COVID-19, it will comfort us all. So uh, I'm going to read John chapter 12, verse 1. It says, then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, who was, had been raised from the dead, was, and there they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil, spikenard, anointing the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii? That was about a year's wage. It was very expensive. And given to the poor. Now, John, looking back, I don't think John knew this at the time, said this he said not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and his hand was in the box and he used to take out what was put in it. Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not always have with you. Scientists tell us that our sense of olfactory, our ability to smell, is one of the keenest and one of the most evocative senses we have. Uh, The five senses prove to me that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that God designed us. Every sense has a utilitarian purpose and then a purpose just to experience beauty. So God has given us 10,000 receptors somewhere in our nostrils, in our brain, um, so that we can have protection, right? So if I go into the refrigerator and I get out the milk, uh, many of us open the cap, we smell it. If it doesn't smell good, we don't eat it, right? So there's a utilitarian purpose. But with the same receptors, I can smell a rose and I can experience beauty and wonder. I remember reading a biography of Ernie Acorsi. He was a young general manager for the New York Giants, the football team. And uh, he grew up in Hershey, Pennsylvania, a very small town. So as a young executive in New York, he would often get homesick, but he couldn't go back to Hershey because of the demands of his job. So I remember Ernie sharing how whenever he was homesick, he would go down to the gift shop, get a Hershey's chocolate bar, open it up, smell the aroma of Hershey's chocolate, and he was right back at home. You see, the senses can evoke memory. Now for me, and don't take this the wrong way, it's bus fumes. And the reason it's bus fumes is because my grandparents never drove a car. And yet what they would do when my sister and I were small is they would take us to Center City to the Greyhound bus station where we would wait for a bus and then we would board that bus and we would go to Atlantic City and we would have a fabulous time at Atlantic City on the boardwalk on the beach. So whenever I smell bus fumes, it evokes a positive memory for me. I'm sure many of you have similar memories. So aromas can evoke pleasant things. They can also evoke things in our past that were not so pleasant. I remember when 9-11 occurred, two days after 9-11, I was with the Billy Graham team in New York City. I will never forget that scene. It had looked like the apocalypse had come. 
Uh, there were paper flying everywhere. The streets were desolate. But the thing I'll never forget is the smell of that day. It was literally the smell of evil. It was the smell of twisted metal and flesh and paper and jet fuel. And even now as I speak about it, I can see those things in my mind's eye. I've shared with you the entire time we've been in the Gospel of John that John is writing much later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And there's things that John is remembering by the Holy Spirit, and it's this spell of, smell of spikenard that I think John never forgot. I think John, 60 years later, is an old man, maybe on the Isle of Patmos, can still smell the wafing of spikenard through the room at Bethany six days before the final Passover that heaven would ever observe. The first verse is a key verse. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. Six days before he would fulfill what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus the first time, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was born to die. Jesus was the fulfillment of what happened at the very first Passover. Six days from this time, Jesus would hang on the cross for my sins and your sins. And John thinks it's so important, he's going to spend the next ten chapters in John telling us just about these six days. Now, there's one key takeaway I want to give all of us, and it's very comforting, and it's the only thing I really want to pull out of this text. I prepared so much more, but for what we're going through right now, this is what we have to take home. It's going to sound trite, it's going to sound like a cliche, but it comes right out of Scripture, and I'm going to prove it to you in a few minutes. What we find here in the last 10 chapters of John is that God is in control. Now, I want you to listen to this. In six days, the human race is going to make the worst decision it's ever made. It's going to kill God. Think about that. It's going to kill a man who came and healed the blind and healed lepers. Wherever he went, Jesus brought the kingdom of God. He set things right. And yet they're going to put him on a cross. The political leaders, the religious leaders, are going to make a horrendous decision to kill God. And yet, what is heaven doing about all this? As all these plots are swirling around, as men are scheming, God is showing us he's in control. Every Christmas we quote Galatians chapter 6, that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those born under the law. So every Christmas time we say, well, Jesus came at the exact right time. This was on God's timetable. This was planned from the foundation of the world. Well, I think what we're going to find in John in the next 10 chapters, every detail of every day of the next six days as Jesus will go to the cross was under heaven's control. Verse 12 tells us the next day was what we call Palm Sunday. And uh, I think next week I'm going to walk you through what I think may be the most brilliant prophecy in all scripture in the book of Daniel. Most of us know on Palm Sunday, Jesus rode on a donkey into Jerusalem. And as he rode into Jerusalem, they put palm branches down and they quoted a messianic prophecy, Hosanna to the king, Hosanna in the highest, that the king has come. And the Pharisees told Jesus, tell your disciples to stop, don't let them say it. 
Now, this is strange because every time Jesus healed someone, he would say, now, don't go and tell anyone. He would heal somebody of leprosy and say, don't tell anyone who it was who healed you. And on this day when they tell Jesus, don't let your disciples declare that you are the Messiah, you know what he says? He said, if they don't declare it, the very rocks will cry out. And the reason the rocks would cry out is this was the day that God decided that the king of the universe, the Messiah, would come to Israel. And Jesus wept over that city because they missed the day of their visitation. All through the Gospel of John, we have seen Jesus say things like, my hour has not come, that I have come for this purpose. No one takes my life, but I lay it down freely. So if God's in control, why does it begin with a dinner at Bethany? And I think in the genius of God, he was preparing his son for the six days that were ahead of him. If you look at the attendees at this feast, I understand what God's doing. Before Jesus would go to Gethsemane and sweat great drops of blood, before his beard would be ripped out, before the passion would come, he surrounds his son with the people that loved him almost like a sick person in a hospital bed where all the family is called in. That's what's important in life. Sitting around this table are the trophies of his ministry, the trophies of God's grace. Mark fills in the gaps in chapter 14, Matthew uh, later in his gospel. This isn't the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. This is the home of Simon the leper, a man Jesus healed, who's now giving him a dinner in his honor, an outcast. We also know that the disciples are there, all 12 of them. We know most of their stories, tax collectors, fishermen. Martha's there, she's serving. Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, Mary's there. This is a picture of the church. This is a picture of the redeemed ones called out and gathered surrounding Jesus before his passion. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us everyone that's there, but I like to speculate a little bit. How cool would it be if Zacchaeus were there, or blind Bartimaeus, the widow's son at Nain, Jairus' daughter, or the woman caught in adultery? By the way, the Bible tells us that you and I are going to be at a similar dinner. The book of Revelation calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb. When God's final judgment is over, and guys, this is the hope that we have. The Bible says in resurrected bodies, you and I will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in some ways, that's a euphemism that we're going to sit around with all the people that we've ever loved. We're going to look at them face to face. And it's going to be an important gathering. Not only is God in control of this gathering, we're told here that gatherings are important. If Jesus needed to gather with the people that he loved and the people that loved him, how much more do we need to gather if you're just tuning in, uh, you can go back in this live stream. We had some remarks earlier that I really believe gathering is important. Yes, this is great what we're doing right now, and hopefully we're gathering in living rooms, and we'll continue to do that. But the gathering with the people that we love, the gathering of the church, is something that's going to be important to us as we go through this time. The final points that I would pull out of this as John's memory is jogged by this aroma, is really three small things. Number one, it's the aroma of devotion. 
See, I don't think John knew exactly what Mary was doing. Uh, he didn't know Judas was dipping into the bag. He didn't really know that this was for Jesus' burial. I think he figured it out later. The memory of this spikenard reminded him of the aroma of devotion. If you want to put Mary's devotion in the context of what we're going through today, she chose helping over hoarding. Now, we all know about hoarding, right? Uh, I'm on WhatsApp and I'm conversing with colleagues around the country in Israel and Russia and Kenya, and they're like, Pastor Bob, what's up with the toilet paper? We just don't get it here. Uh, we haven't heard that this disease causes things with the bowels, etc. And I'm like, I'm kind of embarrassed. I don't know any answers. And they're also texting me like, are the faucets not working in America that you're running out of bottled water? So uh, many are choosing hoarding out of fear. And whether it's the news media to blame or politicians, we can get in that another day. Mary chose this day to empty herself. And, and I want you to think about this. Think about what her fate's going to be in six days. Her Lord, her master, the one that she's following, is going to die on a cross, and I think she knows it. She's one of the few. What's life going to look for her if they've killed her? And by the way, the text says they were looking to take Lazarus also and kill him. Wouldn't she be next as the sister of Lazarus? All the disciples cowered in fear. They thought they were next. This woman takes a year's wage and just lavishly, prodigally pours it over Jesus in devotion. She doesn't save it up for the early church. She doesn't save it up because they're going to be ostracized from community. She just lavishes in pure devotion upon Jesus. When I look at her devotion, it ministers to me in a time like this. That we live in the most prosperous country in the world. We're probably the only country in the world where politicians are going to cut us checks and they're going to make things right. I think this needs to be a time where we can live on less. We don't need all that we have. This can be a time where our devotion can be real. And our devotion can be one where we pour ourselves out in the same way. So I think, number one, there was an aroma of devotion. I think, number two, there was an aroma of judgment. John, well aware of what the next six days would hold as he would write it later. Jesus, day after day, would be go from trial to trial to scourging to scourging. He would become the Passover lamb. Why? Because he was taking the road to judgment. When we go to Israel, the place that I'm so fond of is right down from the Mount of Olives, right before you get to the, where the temple would have been. It's called the Garden of Gethsemane. And many people don't realize it, but it was in that garden that Jesus chose you and me. He went with his disciples to pray. He had taught them in the upper room. And even Jesus in that garden, and the, the name of that garden means the olive press, Jesus pressed. He knew the wrath of God was coming and the love of the Father would turn away from him. He would take on the sins of the world. And in that time, even Jesus, even God in the flesh, he needed people to pray with him. He needed people to be with him. He sweated great drops of blood, but in the garden he chose us. 
He said, it's not my will that needs to be done, but God's will that be done. And God's will was that he would die in our place. It was the aroma of judgment. Jesus said, for this, I have come into the world to be the judgment of sin. We need to be reminded that one out of every three verses in the New Testament is either about Jesus dying or him coming again. There is a judgment on this world coming. And Jesus went to the first judgment, meek and mild as a Passover lamb. He comes again as a warrior of the book of Revelation. And I think that aroma uh, triggered this in John's memory. And finally, the last and final thing, and this is probably the most beautiful thing. To John, it was the aroma of what the new community would be. This thing called the church that hadn't existed yet that would be born on the day of Pentecost. A community of faith, hope, and love where the Holy Spirit, for you know, what we know now is for 2,000 years, would drive the gospel into all the world. We see that picture here at a dinner in Bethany. We see a leper, an outcast, cleansed. If you put that in today's vernacular, that would be drug addicts and drug dealers and people of ill repute sitting around the table. We see common folk. We see educated folk. We see everybody in their right space. Martha's serving again but not complaining. Mary's still sitting at his feet. Lazarus, the guy still doesn't talk. He's got the greatest testimony in the world, and he never says anything. One author said the church community is where we learn to love God and others, where we are strengthened and transformed by truth from the word, where we're taught to pray, to worship, to serve, where we can be most certain that we're investing our time and abilities for eternity, where we can grow in our roles as friends, sons and daughters, husbands, wives, fathers and mothers. The church is Earth's single best place, God's specially designed place, to start over, to grow, to change for the glory of God. Now, sometimes the church doesn't function well. And we can look back in church history and see all the wrongs the church has done. And we can argue, well, was that really the church or just a variation of the church? I'd rather focus on what's the church look like when it's functioning well? Well, it looks like this group of people who didn't pull themselves up from their bootstraps, but they were people that Jesus engaged with, people that Jesus set free, people that Jesus gave gifts to, people like the pastor of Covenant who would send us $500 to get through a rough time, people like uh, the folks we've been calling who are willing to help in different zip codes for people that have need. I shared earlier, I'm so proud of our people. For the people I've been in contact with, they are choosing courage over fear. And that's what we're going to have to keep doing. Now, I know in my house, we check our phones every once in a while. I'll watch a President Trump update, but I haven't watched network news in five days, to be honest. There's no way I can watch network news without having fear enter my system. It doesn't mean I'm not being negligent. I still find my news in other ways. But I'm choosing to look at things that will uplift me and redeem me. We need to choose peace over panic. Is the stock market crashing? Yes. Are we all going to lose money? Yes. But we're all going to do it together. And again, these things were never our hope to begin with.
We may enter a time where a lot of us live with a lot less. We already live with more than most of the world has ever seen. And the last thing I want to say is that those people that gathered in Bethany were ready to go through a very dark time. We're living in a time where a lot of people are hurting, but there's more hurt out there than just COVID-19. That's the thing we have to remember. Sometimes we forget that evil happens every single day. We see that in church work. People die every day. People get sick every single day. I looked up a statistic uh, this week that between January and June, 800 people die by drowning every year. For those families, that's horrific. And there's, a, there's car accidents, there's so many other things. Just in our church community this week, just that I know of, Larry Clark, who's on our worship team, his mother just entered into hospice, and most of her family can't engage with her because of what's going on with COVID-19. How hard must that be? Many of our seniors, we can't even visit. I was down near Marist Grove. It looks like a checkpoint in the Middle East. You can, unless you're delivering something, you can't even get in there. Many of them are home alone. Uh, a couple that works in our youth ministry this year, um, the husband lost his grandfather and his wife, her youth pastor, died in a car accident. So evil continues every day. People are hurting every single day. The beautiful thing is God surrounds us with the people that we love. Guys, God's in control. He really is. He said, let your heart not be troubled. These things aren't new to God. He told us they would happen. He told us there would be pandemics. He told us there would be war. He said, be of good cheer. I've overcome these things. Amen. And our hope has always been on the soon return of Jesus Christ. And we've always preached, whatever we might face, may we face it with the reality that we have a living hope. We got it up pretty late uh, this week on the web, but um, Tim Keller has a live stream, which I'm a subscriber of, and uh, they were doing a five-part series over five months uh, on different things. And this past Thursday, they gave out a free code, and we put it up on our Website, I don't know how many of you were able to see it. And Tim talked a lot about Job, one of my favorite books. And when we talk about God's in control, you know, people will say, well, Pastor Bob, you know, why is God allowing COVID-19? Well, I already told you Matthew 24. I already shared with you that when Jesus looked over Jerusalem, he was basically telling them, in 30-some years, this temple will not only exist, but the Romans will come and starve 2 million Jews out of the city and take all of the riches here and take it to Rome. Jesus said that's coming. He knew it was coming. In the book of Job, we never see God as the author of Job's suffering. We see a God that allowed Job's suffering. He told Satan, this is what you're allowed to do. But the whole time God was in control. And I've shared this before, the one thing you and I can never see is that scene in heaven where God is bragging on Job. There's none like him in all the land. Job could never see the upper stage where God was bragging on him, where God was planning to restore him. God's not the author of evil. He knows why COVID-19's here. He knows what's going to happen. We just need to follow his lead. And we're surrounded 
by a church. And even though it might be virtual now and just a few of us in a living room, we're going to do this together. And the word of God's going to speak. And it's going to comfort. And it's going to show us things that are ahead. And we are the trophies of his grace. Every one of, out, every one of you out there was a Simon the leper. You were a Zacchaeus. You were a Mary, a Martha. Many of you God raised from the dead. Steve, God raised you from the dead? A couple times, literally. I was at a wedding with Steve and I said, Steve, tell me your story. He said, Pastor Bob was a heroin addict. I said, when you did heroin, didn't you know you would die? And he said, I was sad when I woke up. God raised him from the dead. He's raising a wonderful family. Yeah, give him a hand. God raised John Clifford up from the dead out of a prison cell. He's raised so many of us up. We are the trophies of his grace. And we get to do life together. So we'll be with you Tuesday morning in prayer. We'll give you video updates. We'll be back next week at 11 o'clock. Why don't we all stand, guys? Why don't we end with a song? Thank God for his faithfulness.